show starts in three, two, one. Go. Liberalism is back in style. Welcome to the evolution. What if you knew Fox News was just lying to you? How could you watch when you know? He was voted Variety Entertainer of the Year in the Excellence in the Arts Award. And it's one of the highest arbitrage now Nielsen-rated talk radio hosts in Las Vegas. He is also a refreshing voice of logic and reason. Live from the entertainment capital of the world, Doug Basham. I know words, I have the best words. I love the poorly educated. Right under the toilet. And good morning, my fellow wokes and Republican jokes. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Doug Basham, and welcome to the Doug Basham Show right here on KSHP in Las Vegas and on social media, and to a genuine demonstration of excellence in broadcasting. The website is DougBasham.com, last name spelled B as in Bob. A-S-H-A-M, as in Mary, DougBasham.com, my email, Doug at DougBasham.com. Hey, if you are new to this show, here's all you need to know. My website is all of one page. You'll find the show's logo on top. Underneath it, 12 links to everything associated with this show, including links to all the social media sites on which we broadcast this show live. But here's the only one you really need. Click on the YouTube icon. Once there, click on the link that says live. There you can watch the show live or you can view the archive shows. Two clicks, that's it. But hey, if you could manage a third click, namely on the subscribe link, I would be thankful. 221-7283 is our call-in number here at the station, folks. If you want to chat in our second half hour today, that's 702-221-SAVE, as in Save Our Democracy, which is our ultimate and only goal in each and every show we do, lock him up. Sticking with our recent tack of attaching a theme to a show relative to that particular day, I think we're going to call today Well Wednesday, as in not one, but two lives well lived. I mean, my God, 99 years old, and he attends his wife's funeral. Jimmy Carter absolutely refused to miss the final chapter of his decades-long love story with his wife, Rosalind. And let me state from the outset, if you don't love Jimmy Carter, or at the very least, admire him with every fabric of your being, you have willfully and obtusely surrendered your humanity card. And just for the record, I'm excluding any members of Donald Trump's brain-dead mega cult base here as they set their humanity cards on fire the day they threw their support behind this orange traitor. But it was both wonderful and sad watching Jimmy being wheeled into his beloved wife Rosalind's funeral, realizing he had left hospice in order to do so. I would submit... Hollywood has yet to devise or script a love story that could compare to the one Jimmy and Rosalind Carter had in real life. They were married 77 years. And listen to what he said after he won the Nobel Prize in 2002 for his Carter Center's efforts to promote human rights. He was asked if this was the most exciting thing to happen to him, although the interviewer, Katie Couric, suggested that winning the presidency had to be right up there as well. Is this the most exciting thing that's ever happened to you? Or I guess being elected president of the United States must be right up there as well, right? Well, uh, 
when the Rosen said she'd marry me, I think that's the most exciting thing. Oh my gosh, you're going to score uh, points with that this morning. David <laughs> and then uh, Camp David, of course, was very exciting when Begin and Sadat agreed to uh, to have peace, which has lasted now for over 23 years. When Rosalind said she'd marry me was the most exciting moment in my life. You know, my ex said the same thing about me, only she said it on the day our divorce became final. And on the Nobel's website, they wrote that their motivation for awarding Jimmy their most cherished prize was, quote, for his decades of untiring effort to find peaceful solutions to international conflicts, to advance democracy and human rights, and to promote economic and social development, end quote. So Rosalind was number one on his most exciting list. Did you catch what number two was? Peace. What, Jimmy? Not some tall building with your name plastered all over it? At today or yesterday's service, Jimmy and Rosalind's daughter Amy read a letter that Jimmy wrote to Rosalind 75 years ago. I chose something that is hard to read without crying, so be patient. My mom spent most of her life in love with my dad. Their partnership and love story was a defining feature of her life. Because he isn't able to speak to you today, I am going to share some of his words about loving and missing her. This is from a letter he wrote 75 years ago while he was serving in the Navy. My darling, every time I have ever been away from you, I have been thrilled when I returned to discover just how wonderful you are. While I am away, I try to convince myself that you really are not, could not be, as sweet and beautiful as I remember. But when I see you, I fall in love with you all over again. Does that seem strange to you? It doesn't to me. Goodbye, darling. Until tomorrow. Jimmy. Wow. A humanitarian and a wordsmith. And did you know that Jimmy's been nominated for a Grammy Award nine times for Best Spoken Word Album for audio recordings of his books? And he's won three times. First, for Our Endangered Values, America's Moral Crisis in 2007. Second, for A Full Life, Reflections at 90, 2016. And third, for Faith, A Journey for All in 2018. All living former first ladies were present along with Joe Biden. All were dressed in black except for one. Can you guess which one that was? Stick a pin in that. We'll return to it shortly. When Jimmy was at his sickest, the worst was feared. Jimmy refused hospital care, saying he wanted to pass away holding Rosalind's hand. We just learned yesterday that when Rosalind died on Sunday, she did so with Jimmy holding her hand. I thought some of the most touching moments of the service came from Jimmy and Rosalind's Carter Rosalind Carter's son, Chip. Thank you for coming to help my family and to mourn with my family and mostly to celebrate a life well lived. My mother was the glue that held our family together through the ups and downs and thicks and thins of our family's politics. As individuals, she believed in us and took care of us. When I was 14, I supported President Johnson for president. And every day I wore a Johnson sticker on my shirt. And periodically I would get beat up and my shirt torn and the buttons pulled off and my sticker always destroyed. And I would walk the block during lunch from school down to Carter's warehouse and my mother would have a shirt in a drawer already mended button sewn on 
And the LBJ sticker still applied. Years later, she was influential in getting me into rehab for my drug and alcohol addiction. She saved my life. When I started making speeches for Dad in his political career, I was so nervous I often vomited in the waiting room before we went on stage. And one day after debating seven other uh, children of uh, offspring of candidates for president, I called my mother and told her how nervous I got. And she told me something that I have used a thousand times since. She said, Chip, you can do anything for 20 minutes except hold your breath. When I was in the second grade at Plains High School, they had a donkey basketball game in the stadium, in the, in the, the uh, school building there, uh, to raise money for the school. And my mother rode her donkey as fast as it would slowly go, <laughs> right under the goal, spun around so she was facing its tail, caught the pass and made the winning two points. She was my hero that night. And she's been my hero ever since. Sorry, I didn't want to break this up into two segments. The only reason I did so was because of the file size restrictions imposed by the service on which we stream this show. Chip Carter continued. Mom said that when it was decided they would leave the Navy and move back to Plains, that she was upset. And the family story is that they rode in a car from Connecticut to Plains, Georgia. And when mom had something to say to dad, she would say, Jack, would you tell your father? <laughs> she said, you will always get criticized by somebody for everything you do. So you might as well do what right. That she and dad were able to make a positive difference in people's lives and that of so many families too. Mom was always fun to be with. Halloween before the pandemic, Mom showed up at Amy's house. Amy lives on a street which closes down on Halloween and every house is decorated. Mom rated. Mom was beautifully dressed as a monarch butterfly. The Secret Service were dressed in casually but perfectly as Secret Service agents. <laughs> she proceeded to go up and down the street with her grand, great, grand and grandchildren and go trick-or-treating up and down and talk to people all over the street. She got back to Amy's and was so excited because she'd been out so much and nobody had recognized her. After Dad went in, was put in hospice, and my mother was racked with dementia, my siblings, my wife and I, would stay with them so that there would always be a family member around. One day, my mother was sitting with my wife, Becky, and she was reminiscing on what it was like to go to live in Hawaii. And she was talking about learning all the native dances. And she got up from the sofa pushed her walker away, which she couldn't take a step without, and proceeded to do the hula for two or three minutes. <laughs> she grabbed her walker, turned around, sat back on the sofa, and turned to my wife and said, that's how you do it. <laughs> and there is no way that Chip Carter could have concluded his tribute to his mom any more beautifully than he did. I will always love my mother. I will cherish how she and dad raised her children. That given us such a great example of how a couple should relate. Let me finish by saying that my mother, Rosalind Carter, was the most beautiful woman I've ever met and pretty to look at too. Thank you. Incredibly well said, Chip Carter. And you know, I couldn't help but wonder yesterday what America might have been 
if Jimmy Carter had won re-election and we could have dodged the Reagan bullet. Jimmy Carter told the people what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. That's the difference between a good leader and a great leader. A good leader will tell you what you want to hear. A great leader tells you what you need to hear. But you know one thing that bugged me yesterday? And I try to be as straight down the middle as I can when it comes to the Israel-Hamas debacle. But it's been said that Jimmy Carter was the most pro-Palestinian president we've ever had. And yet, pro-Palestinian protesters demonstrated outside Rosalind Carter's memorial service yesterday. And I don't have all the details, but if they weren't there to pay tribute to Jimmy and Rosalind, they should have been all locked up overnight for disturbing humanity. And if that's not a law, maybe it should be. Perhaps if their parents had taught them the old adage, there's a time and a place for everything. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for a ceasefire and have been for a while, and I think I understand the plight of the Palestinian people. But what I saw yesterday was a bunch of people holding signs that said, Free Palestine, which I normally don't have a problem with. But on that day, yesterday, the only signs they should have been holding were ones that said, Thank you, Jimmy and Rosalind. Period. At least, that's how I feel. Maybe not a popular opinion, but it is how I feel. There's no question Jimmy and Rosalind's was a love story for the ages, featuring two of the best human beings and humanitarians to ever walk this earth. And both walked the walk far more than they talked the talk. And they were both paragons of virtue and selflessness. And I'm sad to say, with Rosalind gone, I fear Jimmy won't be with us too much longer. I also suspect that yesterday was likely the last time we'll see Jimmy in public. And it was tough yet wonderful to see them. Fortunately, what they will leave behind will be a legacy for the ages as well. I mentioned a few seconds ago that all living former first ladies were present along with Jill Biden. I also told you that all were dressed in black except for one. Have you guessed which one that was yet? She was the one who only wished she had a husband who could write her a letter even a fraction as sweet as the one Jimmy wrote to his wife. She was the one who was wondering what it would be like to have a husband who didn't cheat on her with a porn star while she was home caring, caring for their newborn son and then pay the porn star off in order to rig an election in his favor. She was the one who was wondering what it would be like to be married to a man whose lasting legacy will be one of honor service, compassion, empathy, and selflessness, and not as a self-absorbed, malignant narcissist and traitor. She was the one who envied Rosalind Carter for having a husband whose hand she wanted to hold, and for having a husband who wanted to hold her hand just as much. And just for the record, the only joy Melania took when her worthless husband won the presidency was she could now be called the first lady instead of the third wife. And you know how Kobe Bryant and Melania were similar? They both made fortunes playing with orange balls. And I remember when Melania was so happy, so excited to greet the official White House Christmas tree, it was the first natural wood she'd seen in years. And you know the difference between Melania Trump and the FBI? The FBI is still coming for Donald Trump. And the one thing Melania is, does prove is that there are immigrants doing work in this country that no one else is willing to do. In conclusion, rest in peace, dear, sweet Rosalind Carter. And if your faith is what you perceive it to be, don't worry. I suspect Jimmy will catch up with you shortly and fall in love with you all over again. And from two literal saints, we turn our attention back to a slovenly, repulsive pig who isn't fit to even look at either of the Carter's shoes, let alone shine them, although they'd probably offer to shine his. 
We have new reporting on what Mike Pence revealed to special counsel Jack Smith. And it's both interesting and weird because part of it actually centers around the use or misuse of a comma. I'll let MSNBC's Chris Hayes set it up because he keeps his focus on our main goal on this show, namely our imperiled democracy. Tonight on All In. I believe that anyone who puts themselves over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. Just how close did Mike Pence come to ending democracy? And I hope Mike is going to do the right thing. I hope so. I hope so. Tonight, new reporting on the plans Mike Pence abandoned and the senator who maybe knew all about it. This story of government abuse and political treachery is scarier than fiction. It really happened. Good evening from New York. I'm Chris Hayes. Just weeks from now, voters will cast the first ballots in, believe it or not, the 2024 primary presidential elections. In less than a year, the whole country will vote again, not only on who will be the next president of these United States, but most likely on whether to continue the American democratic experiment, at least in its current form. This coming year will also bring at least one trial of the Republican frontrunner and former President Donald Trump, the most important of the 91 felony charges against him, the federal elections case, which is now set to go before a judge in March. And that case serves as a crucial reminder of just how serious the man was about overturning American democracy on January 6th, how close he came to succeeding, and how much he wants to do it again. And today, we've got new information about the attempted coup. Now, on its own, this detail, which I'm about to relay to you, it might seem small or insignificant, but it actually sheds dramatic light on one of the most enduring mysteries from January 6th and the run-up to it. But more importantly, it suggests how prepared the entirety of the Republican Party might have been to go along with Trump's plot if things went in that direction. Now, as part of the investigation into the attempt to overturn the 2020 election, special counsel Jack Smith has been speaking with key players as they prepare their case in court. And that includes former Vice President Mike Pence. Pence, of course, famously eschewing uh, talking to the January 6th committee. He's been talking to Smith. And according to a new ABC News report, Smith's team has pressed Pence on all sorts of questions, even something so granular as the placement of a comma in his book. When recounting a phone call with Trump on Christmas Day 2020, Pence wrote in his book that he told Trump, and I quote, you know, I, I don't think I have the authority to change the outcome of the election on January 6th. But Pence allegedly told Smith's investigators that comma should have never been placed there. He actually meant to write that he admonished Trump, you know I don't have the authority to change the outcome, suggesting Trump was well aware of the limitations of Pence's authority. Now, as much as I hate to criticize, Chris did not report that accurately. Let me play that last thing he just said. And as you listen, read the text on the screen. They're not the same. He actually meant to write that he admonished Trump. You know I don't have the authority to change the outcome, suggesting Trump was well aware of the limitations of Pence's authority. Chris just said that Mike Pence said, quote, you know I don't have the authority to change the outcome. That's not what was reported, nor was that what Chris showed on a screen. I'll put the screenshot back up, and you can clearly see that the comma has been removed, and it quotes Pence as saying, quote, you know I don't think I have the authority to change the outcome, end quote, and not, you know I don't have the authority, as Chris said. Big difference. And don't get me wrong, I don't think that was intentional deceit because Chris Hayes simply doesn't do that. I mean, he was showing the actual code on the screen. I would attribute this to perhaps over-exuberance, being overly enthusiastic. But Chris Hayes does not intentionally deceive. I just wanted to make that correction. Because as for the difference between what Pence said with the comma and then without, to me, that's a difference without a distinction. Pence had already told Trump he didn't think he had the authority to change the outcome. So with the comma, it reads, you know, I don't think I have the authority to change the outcome, end quote. 
Without the comma, it reads, you know I don't think I have the authority to change the outcome. They're the same. So all he's doing is repeating something he's already told Trump. This is not any kind of smoking gun that Trump knew Pence didn't have the authority to change the outcome. Now, there's been plenty other testimony that said Trump knew Pence didn't have that authority and knew he'd lost the election, but this, I don't believe, fits that description. And now it starts to get interesting. And the next, and next we learn that Mike Pence just may not have been the democracy saving hero he's been painted out to be. He actually meant to write that he admonished Trump you know I don't have the authority to change the outcome, suggesting Trump was well aware of the limitations of Pence's authority. The special counsel's investigators also pressed Pence on personal notes he took after meetings with Trump. One of those notes, written several days before Pence was due to preside over the certification of the electoral votes in Congress on January 6th, reveals that Pence momentarily decided that he would skip the proceedings on January 6th where he was going to preside altogether. These are notes after meetings with Trump, all right? The then vice president wrote, quote, not feeling like I should attend electoral count. Too many questions, too many doubts, too hurtful to my friend. Therefore, I'm not going to participate in certification of election. Now, Mike Pence, I think, is smart enough to know that Donald Trump is not his friend. Of course, Pence knows Trump is not his friend. And this is why this story is starting to fail the smell test for me. First, Pence calling his Trump his friend. I mean, come on. But for him to say he was thinking about not attending that January 6th session because of too many questions, too many doubts, and the best one, too hurtful to my friend. This stinks. This is not genuine emotion. What Mike Pence is doing, in my not always humble opinion, is what so many in the QOP have done and still are. He's still tiptoeing around on eggshells, trying to placate a guy he knows is not his friend, that he knows is a traitor to this country, and a guy he knows incited his brain-dead MAGA cult base to erect a gallows at the Capitol and start chanting, hang Mike Pence. Oh, yeah, he's your friend, Mike. And make no mistake, Mike knows he's not his friend. And maybe there's an element of self-preservation there and a hope on Pence's part that he and his family can avoid a redux of the January 6th gallows or the usual ensuing death threats they're subjected to when they are too critical of the orange parasite. And as Chris continues, he reminds us of a story we, we learned at the time on January 5th. But as strange as it sounded, it didn't make a lot of sense, you know, minus the January 6th knowledge we have now and it was quickly swallowed up by the insurrection the very next day. And it involves QOP Senator Chuck Grassley. Now, Mike Pence, I think, is smart enough to know that Donald Trump is not his friend. And again, to his credit, he did, of course, decide in the end to show up and fulfill his constitutional obligation. But those notes indicate there was at least a moment when he was planning to not show up. The reason this is such an arresting detail there in black and white, apparently, reportedly, in the notes from Pence himself that the investigators saw, the reason it's such an arresting detail is because it connects to an unexplained mystery of what the man underneath him in the chain of command, the president pro tempore, knew ahead of January 6th. Okay? At the time, Republican Chuck Grassley of Iowa, that man you see there, was the second highest ranking official in the Senate after Vice President Mike Pence. He was next in line to preside over that crucial gathering on January 6th for the certification of electoral votes if Pence was not there. And the day before, seemingly kind of out of nowhere, on January 5th, Senator Grassley told reporters that that is exactly what was going to happen. I quote him here. If the vice president isn't there and we don't expect him to be there, I will be presiding over the Senate. I remember when he said that on January 5th. A lot of people were 
surprised. It raised a lot of red flags. I mean, there were already concerns swirling about members of Congress objecting to the electoral vote in both houses. Uh, there was a bunch of House members and senators. And then what Mike Pence would do with those objections and whether he would help execute the coup or stand against it. When Chuck Grassley said that to reporters on January 5th, it made it sound like Mike Pence decided that he would not participate at all, that he would not stand in the way of the coup going forward. He would step aside and let Chuck Grassley, an ardent defender of Trump, play that role. Obviously, that was an alarming and damning proposition. Now, Grassley's team quickly walked that back, calling it a misinterpretation. They, they said they were talking about some other portion of the proceedings uh, and saying the vice president, Pence, was expected to preside the next day. So, again, a, a weird little footnote in this entire drama. Grassley's initial statement just left hanging there. Tantalizing question. Did he misspeak, like they said? Or was there some plan in place behind the scenes in which Pence decided at some point that he was going to sidestep his duty and let someone else preside over January 6th, presumably someone who would go along with the coup? <laughs> oh, that little. <laughs> As Chris said, that's certainly an intriguing side note to the January 6th debacle. And like Chris, I remember when that story was reported. And we all kind of scratched our heads. But then, given the events of the very next day on January 6th, that Chuck Grassley story disappeared faster than Donald Trump did when he found out Melania was pregnant. Chris continued and brought it back to Mike Pence. And did someone inform Chuck Grassley about Mike Pence making such a decision that he was not going to be there? And for nearly three years, we've had no concrete evidence supporting that damning possibility. But now we do for Mike Pence himself. I mean, his own contemporaneous notes obtained by special counsel Jack Smith and his testimony Smith's team prove Pence had decided to leave the certification of the votes in Grassley's hands on January 6th. And those notes are evidence suggesting that Grassley may very well not have been mistaken. Instead, he was telling the honest truth about what he knew, that he had been briefed or told about this decision. Again, we still don't know definitively. There's no, like, actual smoking gun here. Uh... What we do now know definitively, and this is from the January 6th committee, is that Trump's own coup lawyers wrote out memos imagining a scenario in which Grassley presided. We know that. We know that Pence himself came to a decision, apparently after a meeting with Trump, that he would recuse himself and allow Grassley to do it and memorialize that in notes. And we have Grassley telling reporters that Pence wasn't going to be there and he was planning on presiding. Hey, Grassley still denies he had any idea whatsoever, any of the machinations. And yes, this is about a, a, a detail about something that happened or nearly happened nearly three years ago. It didn't end up happening. But it's so relevant and important in this moment as we look ahead. Again, focus here as we come down the barrel this year. Because it reveals a key lesson from the Trump era. Chuck Grassley is part of the establishment. He's not one of the colorful pro-coup characters like Rudy Giuliani or Sidney Powell or the Overstock guy. He did not vote to overturn the election on that fateful day when after the violent mob sick the Capitol, they all came back into the chamber and had to vote about whether they're going to go along with the mob. He didn't vote for it. In the end, though, Chuck Grassley and the rest of the Republican establishment will go along with just about anything if they see the wind is blowing that way. Good point. And you know, to me, it doesn't matter if this story, be it Mike Pence's comments, be it the misplaced comma in his book, be it Chuck Grassley's involvement, to me, they don't necessarily change anything about what we already know Trump did to steal the election. It might change what we think or how we see Mike Pence, but Pence isn't the target. But Chris's overall point is, even the Republican establishment, the good old boys, the former non-QOPers, they will acquiesce to Trump, they did in 2020, and they will again, given the chance, in 2024. And as he concludes his intro, Chris does indeed, to his credit, bring it back to our democracy. That's it. That's the logic. We've seen Republicans do this over and over again. After he sicked the mob in the Capitol, they've remained in line. That same Chuck Grassley logic. 
Three weeks after January 6th, Kevin McCarthy went to visit Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago, smiling and shaking hands. Remember for that infamous photo? And in her new book, former Congresswoman Liz Cheney reveals, McCarthy tried to explain that away, <laughs> claiming that Trump's staff was, quote, really worried about the former president. And I quote here again, Trump's not eating, so they asked me to come see him. He's really depressed. <laughs> the reality, as we have learned, uh, is that Kevin McCarthy and Chuck Grassley and basically the entire rest of them, with the exception of you, maybe Mitt Romney, they're just going to follow Donald Trump to the ends of the earth or the ends of American democracy if it helps their chances for power. That's it. They're not saving us. They're not the guardrail. They weren't going to stand in his way last time, I don't think. They're not going to stand in his way the next time. Keep that in mind. Because it's, it's the most destructive and dangerous legacy of Donald Trump and his coup. It's why the stakes of this next year are so very high. And as his guest for this segment, Chris had Robert Mueller's lead prosecutor, Andrew Weissman, who actually threw a bit of water on one of Chris's suggestions concerning Mike Pence. And this is what you have to admire about Andrew Weissman. He's very measured, he's slow, and he's methodical, and he definitely is not a yes man. And Andrew, the the, the sort of revelation about Pence's notes don't and this sort of grassly subplot don't bear directly, I think, on the government's case against Trump. But the access to Pence that they have does seem to me a material difference in access to information that no one else has yet to obtain so far who has investigated January 6th. Um, that's right. That, you know, you pointed out that Mike Pence did not voluntarily appear, uh, before the January 6th committee, but, you know, he couldn't do the same thing with the Department of Justice, which has grand jury subpoena power. So he has had to play ball. But I do think that the notes are going to, uh, in some ways help the government and in some ways help Donald Trump. And the reason I say that as a trial lawyer, um, I think that um, it's going to make very palpable um, that there was so much pressure on Mike Pence. You know, he is both a witness and an exhibit. He is a witness because he has terribly damaging uh, statements to offer with respect to Donald Trump. He's an exhibit because he was in very much the same position as Donald Trump. He was you know, running to be the vice president. He had every incentive to think that, you know, if it was true that he, he won and then to, mm. to think, you know, to find if there was real fraud to say it. And so the jury can sort of compare his conduct to the defendant's conduct there. Um, and I think that that note is going to show just how much pressure was on him and that he sort of overcame it. And I think that's going to be the argument. I think that the statements there that there were so many questions, so many doubts will be used by Donald Trump's team to explore weren't there legal doubts, weren't there questions about mm. uh, that caused real concern. Obviously, I think that doesn't ultimately fly because he showed up and he and he agreed that he that he had a duty to the Constitution. But I think that's what you would do if you're Donald Trump. I mean, they have to do something with those notes. And so I think it gives them a little bit of fodder. But ultimately, I don't think it should carry the day. And, you know, I guess this is why I'm not a trial lawyer. Andrew seems to think Mike Pence's notes will give Team Trader a little bit of fodder, not enough to win the day, but still something on which to argue. I disagree. I don't think, I don't see how these can be used to Trump's benefit at all. I think they can be blown off as Pence bending the knee once again to avoid the ire of the orange canker. Now, I think Mike Pence does have much more damning evidence on Trump. That is, if he cares to share it. Time will tell. It, it just might be too hurtful for his friend. And after Chris asks Andrew another question, Andrew throws a little bit more water on one of Chris's thoughts and kind of dismisses Pence's notes like I have. Yeah, those those notes. It's so funny because the, the the tone of those notes. First of all, it's a very very weird way for a you know 
middle-aged man to write. It's a sort of strange, childlike quality to the entire thing. Like, he's talking about whether he's going to, you know, go to his friend's bar mitzvah or not. It's like whether he's going to do the coup. Uh, so there's that part of it, too, which is a weird document. Well, well, Chris, this is the um, Washington, D.C., where people tend to write notes with an eye toward yes. how they might be used later. Um, so I do think people, it, it's not like they're writing a totally personal yes. diary that might, that you, or you never think it's going to see the light of day. Um, so there's, there is a certain amount that I think that he was trying to record um, what his state of mind was at that time that might help him in terms of a course of action he was thinking of taking. And while I agree with Andrew partially, I think Pence's biggest concern at the time wasn't over what he was going to do on January 6th, but rather how he could piss Trump off the least. I mean, sure, he was conflicted to some extent over what to do on January 6th, but all this crap he wrote, too many questions, too many doubts, too hurtful to my friend. Sorry, that just doesn't pass the smell test for me as serious consideration on Mike Pence's part. It sounds like that's what he's using to cover up the fact that he was just a coward who was tiptoeing around the orange trader again. You might, of course, disagree. If so, I'd love to hear why. 702-221-7283 is our caller number here at the station, folks, at 702 702- 221-SAVE. To the phones we charge, and we will begin, as we sometimes do, with our resident psychologist, Carl. You're first. Thanks for calling. Hey, Doug. Uh, how's one of the greatest talk show hosts in the history of radio? What do you mean, one of? Okay. What do you mean, one of? The, well, There okay. are more? <laughs> well, uh, there, you have the top. There's one <laughs> I'm just below you. I'm but, just teasing. Uh, okay. Okay. Listen about talking before about, uh, uh, Carter and, but people forget. I want to make sure that people remember this about them, that couple that I hear a lot of the right wing show. All he did was plant peanuts. Well, number one, people don't remember that he was a nuclear engineer. He helped develop the atomic submarine. I wonder if people remember that. Now, let me ask you, Carl, have you heard them say things like that since Rosalind died, or are you kind of going back to past history? Uh, a little past history, but yeah. since even she died, I heard them say that he didn't do much for this country. And you well, know what, Carl? Been... Even if he was just a peanut farmer, that's honest yeah. work. Look at who this QOP party has now as their figurehead. You know, right, I mean, right. a peanut farmer is a whole lot more honest labor than anything their figurehead has done. Well, we got to look at it this way. Anything he grew had more intelligence than the uh, last president. So, Well, I don't know. I, I, I heard what he grew <laughs> was nuts, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, listen, one other was, thing. Uh, Trump, uh, unfortunately, uh, do you remember when... He uh, was president. Every president has to get a, a medical evaluation. And the phony doctor who gave it to him said that he, I can never forget this. He was the healthiest president in the history of this country. Well, what did he examine? George Washington and Abraham Lincoln? I, don't, I know. I, I don't know if you remember that. I, I do. Mean, Dr. Ronnie Jackson. The, yeah. Who was now I mean, a member was, of Congress. Yeah, he was one of the... He was the healthiest man who ever was in the office of the president. I know, I mean, and, and then he went on to say that he could live to be 200 because he's got good genes. Good genes. Yeah, they are Levi's, I think. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that would be about Well, anyway, I mean, the whole thing makes me makes me sick. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just ridiculous. The Carters were the, the best couple just about to inhabit, to inhabit the White House. And they did more for this country than most couples have done. Oh, that's absolutely. for sure. Absolutely. And there, was, there was, were great people there. It was only three years ago when Jimmy was out there with a hammer in his hand, banging nails into yeah. two before building houses at 96. Well, I know. Had, 
Yeah, Habitat for Humanity. I mean, yeah. one of the greatest uh, things. Yep. I mean, uh, what, are, what, what is Trump really? I mean, what has he ever built or accomplished or except lose money and go into bankruptcy? I mean, that's, <laughs> I can't think of. I can't think of much, much more. One of the worst businessmen that ever lived. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Anyway, I'll let some of your, uh, the people who are against me get on the air. So <laughs> you, you take care, buddy. Don't worry, okay. Carl. I will defend you in your okay. absence. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> hey, I'll thank send you. you a check. Hey, I appreciate okay. it, Carl. <laughs> take care. 221 7283 is a caller number. That's 702 221 7283. I can I can hear them in the distance. It may have sounded like someone clearing their throat to you, but my trained ear identified that sound as drums approaching. The question is, can you hear the drums, Fernando? Uh, yes, I do, every day and every night. And um, <laughs> we forgot that one song, SOS, too. Oh, I love that, too. We forgot that song, but um, I was going to say... Um, Oh, you're saying uh, Well Wednesdays. I thought you were referring to Well Drinks Wednesday. Mm, that'd be nice. Well, that goes and, without uh, saying. <laughs> I mean, every Wednesday is that, Fernando. And then the other thing was, um, if Carter was um, reelected, we would have dodged the Reagan bullet. Was yeah. that a, a Freudian slip, or is that just some humor? <laughs> You know, I didn't realize it until you just <laughs> mentioned. Damn, you're sharp, Fernando. You caught things oh, I, that I, I said that I didn't catch, and I said them. Every oh, word man. that people are saying on the radio, I analyze it. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You know, that that is right up there with Gary's remark yesterday that you could call God a deadbeat dad. That's I mean, it's amazing. I mean, that was that was pretty sharp, and yours today is just as sharp. I commend you, Fernando. Okay, one other question: um, piano players, yes, Elton John or Billy Joel? Who do you got? Oh man, ah, that <laughs> that's a tough one because when they when they performed together in concert, that was just fabulous. You know, yeah, I got Elton John. <laughs> well, I might go with Elton because he's had more hits, but there's no question. Billy Joel is fabulous, too. And and seeing them perform together, I thought was just a treat. Oh, yeah, they're good. Yeah. Hey, have a good day, Brennan. Take care. Hey, you do the same, Fernando. Thanks for the sharp comment. <laughs> that was good. When you said we dodged the Reagan bullet, was that a Freudian slip? <laughs> no, it wasn't. I wasn't sharp enough to make that a Freudian slip. I, I could have said, yeah, that was intentional, but it wasn't. I didn't realize that until Fernando just said it. 221-7283 is a caller number here at the station, folks. 702 702- 221-SAVE. Back to the phones, and we'll talk to Big Bad John. You're next. Thanks for calling. Hey, Doug. Hey, John. What a, uh, what a contrast uh, uh, Rosalind Carter's uh, death provides us between the, uh, the Carters and the, uh, and the Trumps. I no, mean, no kidding. What, it, it really couldn't be any greater. I mean, you got a couple who uh, Jimmy Carter was the first person Rosalind Carter ever kissed. <laughs> and you got Melania Trump, who was a nude model and, you know, married uh, the orange fraud, uh, clearly just uh, under the misguided belief that he was a wealthy man. You know, they, they've never heard a whisper of any sort of infidelity with the Carters. And, you know, Trump has been called a rapist by a New York judge. Um, he's paid a porn star hush money. <laughs> um, he's on tape. Just admitting that he walks up to strange women and grabs them by the kitty cat. He's a self-admitted serial sexual assaulter. Yeah, he's also <laughs> admitted walking into teenage girls' dressing rooms when they were in various stages of undress. He's an absolute sexual predator. Um, and, and look what they've done after they uh, they lost their election. I mean, uh, is, is there any greater uh, good that Jimmy Carter could have done than to build homes for Habitat for Humanity for the, for the, uh, you know, those who can't afford them I versus know. Donald Trump, who just continues to perpetuate this lie and send me money. Um, and we use it for, uh, to overturn the election when he knows he lost. And, you know, he lost over 60 cases uh, in courts of law. 
Uh, it, it's a sense of a community that the Carters represent, and it's just this sense of absolutely no sense of community, and just grab whatever you can grab, steal whatever you can steal, and uh, just line your line your pockets. It's 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 unbelievable. And the people on the right, what's up, JD? Uh, at some point, your grandchildren are going to come to you and say, "Hey, Grandpa." Why is it that you hate Jimmy Carter and, and, and you love Donald Trump? I mean, I just rattled off a long, you know, a partial list, but it was long. I just scratched the surface. Exactly. Of how morally in, 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 uh, deficient Donald Trump is. And, and you're going to have to sit down and explain to your grandchildren, well, sweetie, uh, you, want, you want me to give you a, a line of horse crap or you want me to just cut to the chase? You want, you want me to tell you? You know, oh, geez, there's no better, blah, blah, blah. Or you just want me to tell you that uh, we're Christo-fascists. We, you know, our family, our line is we're Christo-fascists. We believe in white people. We believe in Christian people. If you have any pigmentation in your skin, you're, you're a bad guy. And if you're anything other than a Christian, you're a bad guy as well. God bless you when you have that conversation. Because eventually, boys and girls on the right, your grandchildren are going to figure out exactly who you are. And I feel sorry for you at that moment in time. Incredibly well said, as always, John. I can't, I can't even begin to disagree with anything you said. And you're right. Even, even the time you took to list some of Trump's transgressions and atrocities, you just scratch. You barely scratched the surface. I could go on for hours. I, I know. A week on, know. on what a fraud Donald Trump. He stole money. He stole money on a fake university. The, the, the fraud is endless. And yet these fools, these buffoons, these punks still support him. It boggles the mind. And eventually your grandchildren are going to say, what the hell's up with that, Grandpa? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It'll be an interesting conversation to have. Although... You know, there's a part of me that thinks it'll be a real quick one. While it was the right decision at the right time, God doesn't make perfect men. He makes men perfect for the job. You know, some crap like that. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I hear you, Big John. Great show, Doug. Hey, thanks, Top John. Top five all time. <laughs> what was that? Top five radio shows of all time. Oh, okay. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Hey, folks, we're coming to the end of another show. I couldn't agree with John Moore. What we saw yesterday were two pillars, two mountains, two giants of this country. People who went out of their way to serve, not just when they were politically serving, but when they stopped politically serving and didn't have to serve any longer. They could have retired. They could have done a million other things. They continued to serve and help. And then you compare that with the titular head of the QOP who only lives to serve himself, who wouldn't be caught dead with the rubes, dupes, and suckers in his base that he fleeces for money every single day when they willingly let him do it and lie to themselves that he cares about them. You're right. It was just an amazing study in contrast. Got to go, folks. DougBasham.com is the website. Doug at DougBasham.com is the email. We'll do this all over again tomorrow, hopefully with you. Until then, take care.